Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of Physique Science. Uh, today we've got somebody on the podcast who, it's hard to believe that I've never actually had them on the podcast before uh, because I've been friends with him for uh, 10 years and that's uh, Dr. Dominic Diagostino. And uh, Dom and I met uh, back in 2007 at the Experimental Biology Conference where we were both uh, presenting posters there on our research. And uh, we just knew each other from the bodybuilding.com forums and spent time training together, getting to know each other. And we've kind of uh, just continued that relationship throughout the years. And it's been pretty cool to see Dom kind of evolve from a, a neuroscience guy to being really interested in nutrition. And I remember about uh, six or seven years ago when he started telling me about like what he was doing with the ketogenic diet. And, you know, a lot of people view me as anti-ketogenic, and I, I'm not anti-ketogenic, actually. Uh, I'm just anti-bullshit, as I've t- talked about a lot. Um, but, you know, I do think that there are some benefits to the ketogenic diet. I think many of them tend to be overstated by ketogenic or low-carb zealots. And so I wanted Dom on because I, I thought that if I could get on with him, somebody who's perceived as being, you know, really at the forefront of the ketogenic diet movement, if we can get on and have a conversation about what the science actually says about some of this stuff, that uh, it could really clear up a lot of confusion for people. And so uh, I think it's a great podcast. I think it's one of our best. Uh, it's almost an hour and a half long. So uh, we definitely uh, squirrel a lot and uh, divert a lot. But there is a ton of information in this. Um, if you guys listen to this whole thing, you're going to learn so much. You, you, you'll be shocked. Um, and I really do think, in a way, it's one of our best episodes. And, um, you know, we, we definitely, I mean, we could have kept talking for another two hours. So um, it was tough to actually cut it off when we did, but I was afraid it was going to turn into a three-hour podcast if we didn't. So I think it's highly likely we'll have him back on in the future. And, uh, you know, this was a lot of fun for us. So uh, big thanks to, to Dr. Dominic. And, um, you know, we really enjoyed having him on. And he's just, like, the nicest guy. So... Um, I hope you guys enjoy this, and uh, if you have any questions, you know, feel free to uh, uh, send us your questions at uh, lane at biolane.com, and uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. All right, enjoy the episode, guys. So how's things out in Arizona? Um, they're going, I, you know, I just had my, um, my study approved for IRB approved. Um, oh, wow. I don't know if I told you, but in June, I got re- flat out rejected. Um, uh, and every all the professors were like, "What? How does it even happen?" Because I guess it never happens at ASU. But they rejected me, so I spent five months trying to um, changing everything from a dietary intervention to a freaking survey because I just want to graduate at this point. Yeah, I and they one. they finally approved me two weeks ago. But then I met with one of my other um, committee members, def- you know, thesis defense committee members, and she pretty much said that the stat- the statistical analyses required would be is way too advanced beyond what I will ever learn in this program. So she very much encouraged me to simplify my study design. So I'm changing it again. Mm. So I just, yeah, I just want to be good. <laughs> but it's a good, you know, it's a good learning, learning experience. And um, now I'm realizing and people kept reminding me, you know, you're not trying to change the world with your master's thesis. This is not the time to be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> so well, who knows? You may, you may still. I may, I may, I'm hoping this will be the first of several studies, and if I end up just doing a series of surveys, that's fine too. But I'd like to eventually come up with a validated scale to measure some aspects of eating behavior that I'm interested in yeah. that are not out there right now. So, have you ever had a study rejected for IRB? 
Yeah, I mean, we yes. got, well, we had four IRBs go through. Yes, I have something that neither of you have. I've never been rejected. Well, it's the IA cook for animals. But. Well, not, uh, it bounced back, you know, bounced back oh, yeah, probably about that. seven or eight times before we got it through. through wow. Oh, so NASA, NASA is very risk averse, so they. Uh, sure. Wow. Yeah, and, and one was just, it was so bad, I was just like, I'm, I give up. But we had five going in, and we got four out of five uh, approved for oh, that's good. this year, actually. So. Yeah, well, I was I was told Dr. Campbell was telling me that sometimes it takes up to a year to get approval, IRB approval. Yeah. Um, oh, easy, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, so. depending on the institution. Yeah, that's yeah. why, I mean, you know, people, you know, people don't realize that, like, you know, from inception to publication, it can oh be my like gosh. three or four years. I didn't you know, oh, yeah, yeah. work on an IRB for just yeah, a year, yeah. and then doing a study for a year, Absolutely. and then working up the data for a year, and then yeah. publishing for six months. I haven't even started collecting data, and I've gained so much respect for researchers just from going through this. There's so much work involved with designing your protocol, explaining your rationale, and everything. It took me ten years not to worry. It took me ten years to get my PhD Ooh. dissertation research. Well, nine, yeah. Wow. So wow, wow, wow. I finished my postdoc before it got published, actually. Oh, postdoctoral okay. fellowship. So I was done with that by the time it got published. Well, my my last study in my PhD just got published in the early 2017. Oh, yeah. So that was seven years later, you yeah. know. Yeah. And probably almost uh, nine years after, eight or nine years after I did the actual research. Yeah. So that's uh, so, kitties, for those of you listening, uh, if you're into quick gratification, research is not your thing. It's not your thing. And that's Definitely why. Take a ton of patience. I'm being tested every day now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well, I guess that we can go ahead and segue into we have obviously the legendary uh, Dom D'Agostino here. You like that? Is that, is that he, he would <laughs> never call himself that. I've never heard uh, that my name prefaced like that. So. Uh, so I hit a PR. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go. All right. <laughs> so uh, for those that aren't familiar with Dom, uh, Dom and I have been friends for about 10 years now. Yeah. We met at uh, Experimental Biology in 2007, so it will be. It's 10 yep. years this, this past April. Um, and I had known you well before that, just online. Yeah, yeah. from the bodybuilding.com yeah. forums. We were both on the bodybuilding.com forums. And... Uh, yeah, we we just commented before this podcast started mm -hmm. that yeah, like we were friends before yeah. you know anybody yeah. knew anything about either one of us, yeah, you know, yeah. or cared about our, our research or what we did. So it's pretty cool yeah. to see like how big his name has gotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with you, um, I'll just I'll I'll give the intro because you you don't like to talk about yourself too much. Uh, but he has he, he did a your PhD is in neuroscience, right? Mm -hmm. And physiology. Yeah. And physiology. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a professor at USF, University of South Florida, um, and he does a lot of research into ketogenic diets, and uh, which we're going to delve into a lot today. But actually, what I wanted to start out with was we do this for pretty much everybody that comes on our podcast. Uh, we like to talk about how they got into research, like how yes. did you know what was that inception for. You know, there's very few people out there that wake up when they're a kid and they're like, I want to do a PhD one day. You know, it's like you're a fireman or you're a police officer or you're a baseball player or whatever. Yeah. So when was the inception of, of, I really like this stuff. I think I'd like to pursue, you know, higher education. Yeah. Uh, so research, I guess to be honest, you know, I was in a nutrition program, my undergrad. So mm -hmm. I did biology and nutrition. Where, we, where were you at? Undergrad? At, at Rutgers. At Rutgers, University. yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, I kind of got talked out of nutrition, as you know. Like, some, <laughs> yeah. Some well, people, actually, yeah. a lot of people consider it a soft science, and especially back in the early two thousands. <laughs> yeah. Um, that my actually, when I went to interview at Illinois, my uncle who did a uh, his bachelor's in, in nutrition science and was worked his way up to vice president Mead Johnson at one time. Yeah. Um, he said, "Don't be surprised if you come across a lot of really bitter nutrition professors, because yeah. a lot of them are viewed like, especially through like the '70s, '80s, and '90s." As a, as a joke science or a soft science, yeah, even yeah. though now it's very well regarded as a yeah. very important science. That's surprising. So I that would never surprise me that, that somebody talked you out of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, if I was kind of my track was to go to med school, so it was like, well, why don't you just take biology and take more, you know, biochemistry, molecular biology. Uh, the hardest, the best courses and the hardest courses I had, you know, as an undergrad was my nutrition, advanced nutrition one and two, which was like the advanced biochemistry of food and, yep. and, and metabolism. And uh, I probably learned more in those classes than anything else. Uh, so I was actually, I think it was my junior year, I realized that I needed to get some laboratory experience to look competitive on, uh, you know, for my resume, for my application for medical school. So uh, I did an undergraduate uh, research project. And that was, uh, that undergraduate research got me very interested in research and my mentor at the time, I was kind of in, pretty impressed with her and uh, and it became, uh, she kind of talked me out of going to med school and actually you know pursuing a PhD. So uh, my PhD project was basically uh, understanding the neural control of autonomic regulation, so how the brain controls our physiology. And that's why I majored, you know, really studied neuroscience and physiology. And, uh, and my PhD research was on, you know, looking at the response to low levels of oxygen. And after I finished my PhD, my postdoctoral fellowship was looking at the effects of high levels of oxygen as it pertains to Navy SEAL uh, warfighter and how to, how to understand it, predict it, prevent it. And part of preventing oxygen toxicity seizures uh, was the ketogenic diet. So I realized uh, clinically the ketogenic diet was used for uh, drug refractory or resistant epilepsy. And then the more I looked into it, it was the most powerful neuroprotective anti-seizure strategy out there. So I directed my research kind of away from drug-based research and more towards nutrition uh, as a metabolic-based therapy that you know, on paper, and the science demonstrated that it was more powerful than any drug out there. So I just wanted to understand it and harness kind of that and harness metabolism, essentially, uh, for, you know, uh, the agency that was funding me, which is the Department of Defense and Office of Navy Research. Wow. Okay, so I have to ask, um, because I'm a grad student currently, did you go straight from undergrad to grad school to post, you had no breaks, you just went straight through? Uh, I did, yeah. I uh, when I was an undergraduate, I uh, applied to the PhD program, and uh, you know I, I took a little bit of time off to study for like the GREs and things like okay. that. Uh, so and I just kept taking it. You know, there was a subject GRE that was like you know molecular biology or, or biochemistry. So I had to like kind of study to make sure that I uh, the requirements to get into the PhD program were just like a little bit higher. Uh, than the master, so I kept uh, kind of work until I knew I could at least be competitive on there. And when I got in, I was real happy because I felt like 
I kind of yeah. skipped the step. Uh, so that got me, uh, and I was able to sort of parlay my undergraduate research into my PhD research. So I had, uh, I had skills like uh, I knew how to do patch clamp electrophysiology and immunocytochemistry, immunohistochemistry, and the animal research and things like that, Ooh, as, that as an undergrad. <laughs> so I had a little bit of an up going in, uh, but, uh, but yeah, my, my PhD research was, was really hard and it kind of humbled me. And uh, you know, it's a lot of failures before you get things to work. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and that uh, I, I went into it, you know, pretty, Pump that I would just bang it out in three years. I was even telling people, I'm going to get this done in three years. Yeah, it took me five. Uh, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a little it, less than five. I can't years. imagine Dom not being humble though, just like the way. He is, but well, um, yeah, I was excited. I was so excited. Yeah, you were. Yeah, like you know, I'll I'll outwork. You know, I have this outwork mentality. <laughs> I'll just keep working and get this done really yeah. fast. Well, what you find is too is it's, yeah. yeah, work ethic is very important, but yeah. Um, yeah, you're just like there's a certain amount of mistakes you're just gonna make, yeah. like, and, and yeah. you just gotta get through it. Like, and you know, the first three years of my PhD was just a wash. I didn't yeah. get any data, you know. So, um, yeah. like, convince people to to stick that out. You know, that's. I remember talking to Jeremy Linicky, um, and we were discussing like the state of education in this country, and he, he was talking about how the education system's a joke. He said, but I'll tell you one thing, we still got. Yeah. He said, graduate school here is still legit. He's yeah. like, there, that, there's a reason everybody comes yeah. from other countries to go to grad school yeah. here. Yeah. And, For sure. Um, I've, I've certainly noticed a difference in um, much higher caliber for grad grad programs, my classmates even, um, in, in general than like the, probably the un average undergrad population you would come across because they usually have a very specific reason for being in grad school. Obviously, some of them yeah. are there just they have they don't know what else to do. But <laughs> in general, like for, for me, for example, I came back to school to learn stats, to learn how to read research. And so for me, this has a lot more meaning than just getting a degree, an, an extra and degree. Let me ask you, Sohi, do you feel like you got a lot out of it so far? Yeah, uh, yes. It's been, um, you know, this, I think this is my third and uh, third semester. This is my second year, third semester, um, last semester with classes, and next semester I just have my thesis to work on. And I will say that this semester probably has been the most difficult for me in terms of um, not time-wise, just mentally the frustrations the the modifying my thesis over and over and not realizing oh i should have done this months ago and there's no way i could have known and um the stats class that i'm learning right now you know multivariate statistics i'm learning um structural equation modeling and exploratory factor analysis and all these things and trying to wrap my mind around those concepts and feeling like this is what it's like to feel you know dumb i don't i don't get it i don't get it <laughs> and, um so in that way it's been really really trying but i also know that this is the stuff that I will use in the future. Um, this is what hopefully I will take back with my own, you know, my fitness career and whatnot. I want to help my interest is in the psychology of eating behavior. And it's really not well studied. But, uh, there are a lot of things we don't understand, especially with intuitive eating and other concepts. So I really want to help expand upon that. And I can't do that without this foundation first. So I'm always trying to tell myself, okay, just this many more weeks, just this many more weeks, just stick mm -hmm. it out. Take it one day at a time, but definitely very. Um, it's been a very difficult uh, semester-long test, you could call it, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. Like a lot of people will ask me, you know, like you know, I've been coaching people online for for 12 years now. And like, uh -huh. did your PhD help you? And I said, yeah, it helped me a lot. Um, but you know, at no point in a in a schooling is somebody going to tell you, well, when this client does this, you need to do this. You know, yeah. like that you're not going to get that, you know.
But what I can tell you is your ability to think critically, analyze research, form educated opinions, and be willing to change your opinion, if you do it right, is going to be unbelievably enhanced. Uh, yeah. I heard something the other day, and I was telling Andrew and Dom yesterday, I said, uh, be willing to learn something new, change your mind, uh, change what you know, unlearn it, and then relearn it completely differently. I, I probably butchered the quote, but I, I feel like that is that is so true. Like, just what we believe, especially with how fast things are evolving now in science, you know, yeah, with, yeah. with, with um, AI and... Yeah. and computer systems and the processing we can do. Yeah. like yeah. It's just mind-boggling. And, you know, wh one of the other things we, we talked about yesterday, and I, I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about this too, was um, some of the greatest uh, things you'll ever come across in science are complete and utter mistakes or things you didn't expect. Like, you know, like some of my – I thought the most interesting stuff from my Ph.D. was the protein synthetic refractoriness, and that was a completely unexpected uh, thing uh, in fact, I kept running the data over and over because I didn't, I didn't, yeah. I didn't believe the data, or I didn't, I didn't want to believe the data because it didn't fit my hypothesis. And uh, Layman was great. He was like, no, maybe you should stop trying to make the data fit your hypothesis <laughs> and change your yeah. hypothesis to fit the data. Yeah. And that was a mind blowing moment for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and it, like actually uh, aspartame. I don't know if you ever heard the story of aspartame. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a guy who was working on dipeptides, chlorinated uh -huh. dipeptides. And uh, he was reading a book at the same time, licked his fingers to turn the page, and noticed that his fingers tasted sweet. And that's how aspartame really? uh, yeah. It's It's uh, phenylalanine it's and aspartic acid, aspartic acid yeah. with, a, with a chlorine, I, I think, on it yep. as well. Yep. Yeah, so that's pretty wild, just a complete mistake, and now yeah. the most popular artificial sweetener there is, you know, yeah. whole industry around it. So uh, you were telling me yesterday, you kind of came across, you know, ketogenic diet. People, what you know, they know you for, I think, mm -hmm. is they think of you and they think, okay, ketogenic yeah, for sure. Therapy for um, cancer. Fill in the blank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or panacea, what else? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But that yeah. was kind of come across, you know, obviously you looked at it for epilepsy for, for divers. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, yeah. But it was kind of by accident that you did, you found that it might have an yeah. application to cancer as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, you know, to study uh, brain cells under high levels of oxygen pressure to simulate you know, it would be a Navy SEAL dive, we had to create various technologies to uh, to look at cells and even mitochondria in these high pressure oxygen conditions. So we have environmental chambers that are hyperbaric chambers or hypobaric, depending on the chamber. And uh, we installed, part of my postdoctoral fellowship was installing technologies like a microscope inside these to, to visualize the cells and the cellular and molecular processes and the cell membrane, for example, under these conditions. And uh, uh, part of it was uh, in, in validating the technology for use in biological samples. Uh, an atomic force microscope was put inside, and that was used to characterize materials, but not really biological materials. So I, wanted, I did a wide variety of cells, brain cells, muscle cells, heart cells, uh, skin cells, and I noticed I had a cell line that I didn't really know where it came from. Uh, and I was a colleague had given it to me and when I was studying these cells it was interesting uh, it differed from the other cells because they were overproducing massive amounts of oxygen free radicals in response to great levels of oxygen and uh, visually from using uh, confocal microscopy I could see that the mitochondria were kind of blowing up and exploding and it was uh, because of the oxidative stress and the membranes were starting to degrade through membrane lipid peroxidation. 
So I delved into, you know, exactly what cell line, I knew it was an immortalized brain cell line, that's all I knew at the time. Uh, and there was a, a wide variety of these types of immortalized cell lines, but it was a, a U87 uh, MG cell, a glioblastoma cell. So I looked into uh, understanding that it was a cancer cell. Uh, I went and looked into why are cancer cells different and why, you know, uh, are they sensitive to these high levels of oxygen. And that led me, uh, and there's many different reasons for that, but that led me down to the path of kind of studying cancer. And, and using things like uh, high-pressure oxygen to reverse tumor hypoxia and to stimulate oxidative stress in cancer cells. And it led me to the understanding that cancer cells have damaged, uh, or I could say uh, dysfunctional mitochondria in that their mitochondria are not able to effectively metabolize certain, certain energy substrates for, to generate ATP. And at least in this brain cancer cell line, that was the case. So that led me to uh, to doing some some pilot studies on, on uh, ketones and, and cancer cells and culture. And uh, soon after, I had a, a student that wanted to do a, her PhD dissertation project on the ketogenic diet and hyperbaric oxygen combined. And that was around 2010. I formally, you know, started this research and got, you know, ethics approval to do uh, some pilot studies that led to uh, a number of different, you know, projects we have going on in the lab now. Wow. Okay. So briefly, I know there are a lot of misconceptions, but what, how do you do, what is the keto diet? What does it consist of? What, what makes it different? So I'll tell you what it's not. First, it's not a high-protein diet. <laughs> it's actually yeah. a low-protein diet, the uh, classical, you know, clinically-based ketogenic diet. Okay. Um, I like to kind of approach it in describing it in the context of fasting or not eating, right? Uh, when we fast, we liberate, you know, our, our fat stores from adipose to energize our body when we deplete our, our glycogen uh, stores. And fat is... A, a very effective fuel for the heart, for the muscles, but not the brain because these large uh, fatty acids uh, cannot effectively cross the blood-brain barrier. So our brain through beta oxidation of fatty acids creates uh, beta hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate and these are called ketone bodies and they're very small, I think of them as very small water-soluble uh, breakdown products of fat metabolism that occur uh, and they're very, very highly energetic efficient fuels and they more or less spill into the bloodstream and our brain, uh, you know, uses these quite readily as a fuel source. So after fasting for a period of days, you switch, your brain switches from glucose metabolism to ketone metabolism. So this was shown back in 1967, uh, originally by work done at Harvard Medical School by uh, Dr. George Cahill. And, uh, and that sort of changed our whole idea of, of, you know, brain energy metabolism. And I do think from the context of, uh, well, as a neuroscientist, I'm very interested in this, but even from the context of dieting, if you elevate ketone bodies, a fuel that your brain can use, even if you're dieting and you have periods of hypoglycemia, which are inevitable if you're calorie restricting, if you create a calorie deficit, and your ketones are elevated, you are resilient and even asymptomatic uh, uh, against hypoglycemia, and that could be something like falling on the floor or cravings and hunger will be significantly attenuated with ketones. So that's one of the practical advantages there. 
Oh, you had a question? No, I just okay. I can think of uh, like my dad, for example, is hypoglycemic. He's um, you know, years ago we were hiking up and he just passed out, fell down the mountain about a uh, hundred yards from being hypoglycemic. So that's something that oh, yeah. maybe yeah. him if he were to. Yeah, you kind of have yeah. to think about um, you know, you you have your body has a fuel selector, you know, and you can. Now, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's an on and off switch. For ketones, it kind of is. Um, it's you know, like and, a hybrid. Yeah, like but. You are, if you're if you're but if you're consuming you know uh, like a normal amount of carbohydrate that most people would be your your ketone levels you measure can be pretty minimal. You're right? never yeah if you're never unless you eat like a real early dinner that's like a low carb dinner like most people we've done so we've done hundreds of thousands of ketone measurements and uh, you know on on mice and people it's really rare to find someone in a state of ketosis. You know, but even like, fast. do they do they register like a you know like a lower level of ketones? Like, is there like, or is yeah. it like almost non-existent in the blood if they're eating a certain amount of carbohydrate? Uh, it's it's always there, but it's not what I would say a significant contributor to, to energy. Brain. Yeah, yeah, you have to really not like go without food for at least uh, a day and without carbohydrates for two or three days to really start getting your ketone levels elevated. Okay, so. So you have to think about like you have kind of I mean there's more fuels than this but I'm I'm paraphrasing you have and even with ketones it's still part of fat metabolism yeah. it's a it's and a it's a un, it's kind of a less used portion of fat metabolism but you have you have glucose metabolism you can you which obviously we're a lot of people are familiar with how you can get energy from that you have fat metabolism those two kind of go on a sliding scale. The more glucose metabolism you have going on, the less fat metabolism you'll have going on, and vice versa. Yeah, it's, it's not quite that simple. but And typically you have both going on at the same time in terms of using both for fuel. Um, if you have a high-carbohydrate diet, you're, you're, and it makes sense from a teleological perspective, if you eat more carbohydrate, you're going to burn more carbohydrate. Yeah, you burn now, what you eat. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. And that's, you're just adapting your body to that. Now, a lot of people will incorrectly take that and say, well, if you – not incorrectly, but they, they go too far with it, and we discussed this, but, yeah. well, if you want to burn more fat, you use more fat for fuel. Well, you will burn more fat, yeah. but you're also consuming more fat, so you yeah. can also store more fat. You know, carbohydrate, yes, there is de novo lipogenesis, but there's studies to show that the contribution towards total fat content of stored body fat is really, really small from de novo lipogenesis, from carbohydrate to adipose. Now, that being said, I think if you were eating like very low fat, very high carb, and still in a calorie surplus, your body would probably get more able mm -hmm. to store that. Um, but point being is that, well, how would you get fat on a high carb diet then if, there's, if it's not really converting much from carbohydrate to fat, to body fat? Well, the fat you eat now has no reason to be oxidized, and you can mm -hmm. store much more of it, right? Yeah. yeah. The flip side, if you're eating a lot of fat, you're mm -hmm. burning a ton of fat, yep. but you're also storing more fat. Yep. So, you know, and we, you know, the net thing comes down to calories. It's absolutely calories, which is... Did you all hear that? Did you hear <laughs> that? <laughs> calories matter? <laughs> it's not acknowledged enough in the low-carb uh, yeah. ketogenic diet community that calories are really uh, kind of like the most important thing, right? So, so the way, the, the, for me and for many people who, you know, are proponents of the ketogenic diet... Uh, and things like intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting and carbohydrate restriction, you know, and a ketogenic diet kind of all lumped together are, uh, are very effective ways to create a calorie deficit for some people, you know, time restricted eating, eating for an eight hour period and fasting 16 hour period, 
uh, like yesterday I did intermittent fa- or the day before yesterday I did intermittent fasting. I Me too. Days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't eat for like nine hours straight yesterday. And so he I was felt great. He was like super sharp and everything too. So I was like, could you intermittent fasting? Uh, but yeah, some days actually uh, I acknowledge that I actually feel. I don't know if it's a little bit like calmer and sharper at the same time uh, than if I eat, you know, my typical breakfast, which is you know kind of a keto breakfast, like eggs and maybe some fish or some greens and things like that. Uh, I just feel a little bit sharper usually. So kind of when I want to be my best, but then if I know I'm going to work out like later in the day, I know it's important to get a little bit of calories in uh, just because I feel you know I have a little more drive in the gym. Um, when I do that, but it, it varies, it, it varies considerably. But the thing is that, um, you know, if you are using, uh, to create body composition alterations and changes, uh, typically, you know, losing fat, you have to create a calorie deficit. And for some people it's hard to do if on a carbohydrate based diet, I find. And some people just find mentally they do a little bit better on a ketogenic diet or low carb diet and, and ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting is actually a lot easier if you do the ketogenic diet yeah, because uh, keto coupled with intermittent fasting. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you're you know you're quote unquote a little bit fat, more fat adapted. Now, if you just do so, carb backloading and veganism somewhere in there, um, now you will you know cover the and paleo, you would cover the gamut of uh, all of everything that would make us clickbaity as hell and yeah. uh, get this podcast in the top one percent. <laughs> um, no, I mean that, that that's a very uh, good perspective and something that I think is lost. I mean you know. Like a lot of people will keep tweeting at me about Joe Rogan and, and get laid on the Joe Rogan podcast, and um, because you know a lot of people want to blame it on sugar or this and that, and you know the fact of the matter is that it's overconsumption of calories. Now, if you're somebody who knows that you have a really hard time not overconsuming sugar, mm-hmm. or you're somebody who knows that like um, you you just it's easier for you. Uh, we always like everything is restriction in terms of like what you prefer. Let me, let me explain. So for some people, for me, it feels more restrictive on my lifestyle if I'm not, if I can't eat carbohydrate as a food group or if I can't eat for 16 hours or if I can't. So I'm, I'm never saying any of these things don't work. They absolutely do work for people. Um, for me, the least restriction I feel is when I can track and eat the foods that I enjoy and, and, and kind of fit that into my macros for lack of a better term, you know, flexible dieting. Um, but somebody who, somebody may feel extremely restricted by having to track, right? Like that may actually feel like more restriction to them. And so for them, they say, you know what? Like, it's just so burdensome on my lifestyle. It activates my OCD. Um, so for me, like I I just, if I don't eat for 16 hours, I know I won't overeat in eight hours and that's how I create my caloric Mm -hmm. deficit. Do that. hundred percent. Um, same thing for, for. A ketogenic diet. If yeah. that's how you're able to create a calorie deficit, and that's what makes sense for you and your lifestyle, and you're able to maintain that, I'm 100% all behind that. Just, and here's where the caveat for me comes in: just don't tell me it's better when the, in terms of physiologically better, when the research says otherwise, right? I think what we have a lot of times is it's so weird in nutrition. Um, people will figure out what they like to do, and then they'll try to take the research and validate what they like to do using the research yeah, right. and, and cherry picking, right? Cherry picking. Instead yeah. of why can't you just say, well, what it comes down to is basically calories uh, consumed, somewhat protein because protein, protein and fiber because they're thermogenic, mm-hmm. 
and everything else is kind of eh, just kind of do what you prefer. Why can't we just say that? You know, what's wrong with that? Um, and I think for whatever reason, it's because nutrition has become kind of this religious cult. I mean, you you mentioned yeah. yesterday sure. that um, that somebody said yesterday or not yesterday, but he mentioned yesterday that people who were like like ketogenic diet followers accused him of not actually following ketogenic diet principles because he said calories matter. Oh, you know, you'd be surprised at how many times, yeah, I'm told by people online who dub themselves nutrition experts that when you do keto, calories don't matter anymore. And it's, I don't know where they, where they get this from, but um, another important point to bring up alongside what you said, Lane, is that, you know, a lot of people get to thinking that because one nutrition method works well for them, it must work well for everybody else. Therefore, they have to, it's their mission in life to convince everybody else the same exact thing. We must convert you or we will launch yeah. the jihad. You know, like, like, that's what it feels like sometimes, like, because I put out a video. Uh, well, actually, the way we met, uh, we talked about this. So the way Sohi and I met was she wanted to quote for an article she was doing on intermittent fasting. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, um, actually, you tell you tell the story. Yes. Okay. So it was um, uh, June or July of 2012. I had just graduated from undergrad. I was interning at a um, place in uh, in uh, the Boston area at a, at a strength training facility, and I was just had started blogging a few months by then, and that that was when intermittent fasting had just started blowing up. You know, five and a bit years ago, and I was writing a blog post on. Um, not attacking it, not supporting it. It was just a post to tell you whether or not you should do it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it right for you? Yeah. Yeah, Is it right for you? Here's a list to determine. And I reached out to Lane to get a quote because I knew from following him on Twitter and other Facebook and things like that, that he had some thoughts on intermittent fasting. And I think within an hour or so you, you replied back to me. This is um, with a paragraph long quote. He goes, is this okay? And I'm like, Oh my God. Yes. So I plugged it in and, um, a few days later, I published the, 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 the article, and I got shared quite a bit, um, making a lot of intermittent fasters very angry because they obviously misinterpreted One, what I was thinking. The and, high priest in particular. Oh, yeah, Martin Birkin. <laughs> calls himself the high priest of intermittent fasting. Oh, really? Find it funny. Yeah, yeah. Which, is, which is actually very funny considering it's like a religious cult that he calls himself the high priest. I thought that that was pretty fitting. Uh, well, so it's funny now because – uh, it got a lot of shares and it got a lot of discussion going and made a lot of people angry. But it's funny because people thought I was anti-intermittent fasting. But I'm like, even now, I'm like, I actually do intermittent fasting. I just don't stuff it down people's throats just because yeah. I did it and it works for me. Uh, <laughs> tools, so, tools yeah, the, and and as a coach, I think you can you can talk about this. So he, you can speak to you and I can speak to this. Is that you know everything's tools in the tool belt, right? Yeah. I've I've never told somebody. Hey, you can't do intermittent fasting if you're working with me. Uh, what I tell them is, okay, well, as long as you understand that I, you know, there's you enjoy it, so that's that's good, that's important. Yeah. Um, there's this drawback to it, but as long as you're okay with that, then sure, do that. You know, that's fine. Like, why can't we just do, you know, libertarian lane here? Why can't we just? Why can't you? Why can't you just leave people alone to do what they like to do? You know, like this. If it, it at the end of the day, if it works for them, that's fine. Even like reverse dieting, people get so mad about my my stuff with reverse dieting. I'm like, I'm not telling anybody that this is like the magic solution. I'm not stuffing it down your throat. All I'm saying is, this is an option. If you want yeah. to do it, great. If you don't, then uh, no skin off my back. You know what I mean? But um, yeah, so it's 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 kind of interesting how you've even dealt with, you know. Yeah. But I bet you know it's yeah. kind of like uh, uh, vegans. I I got this after I did a, kind of a review of what the health. Um, I still haven't seen that movie. Oh, 
Just, I can't free myself. Oh, oh. not to. <laughs> I haven't yeah, either. <laughs> oh, I have PTSD. Watch it though, because I get a lot of. I have PTSD it. from that from that yeah. that documentary. Um, you know, it, 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 the the vegans who were actually like intelligent and could listen to what I was saying said, "Oh, thank you so much." Like, well, I'm, I'm, we're, we're, I, I get so tired of having to deal with, the, you know, the zealot vegans, and you know, they said that, that you know, they're actually they feel like it, they they make vegans look bad. You know, it's no different. Unfortunately, it's like the the loud minority. You know what I mean? It, it's no different than again by relating to religion. You know, like. You know, there are plenty of Muslims who are great people and lovely people, and most of them are. But unfortunately, one some crazy mm -hmm. goes and, and bombs someplace, you know, we get a negative opinion of a group of people who don't deserve that negative opinion, right? And it's the same thing for, for any stereotype. But yeah, like, you know, like the, the whole joke, you know, uh, a CrossFitter, um, Somebody else, somebody else walk into a bar, you know what I mean? Or who, who's, who tells who about what first, you know? Um, and, and, you know, I think most people are kind of more along the lines of they just stay quiet because they don't want to get involved in, well, I'm right, well, you're wrong, well, I'm, you know? And it's, it's, and really, if it works for somebody, who cares? And I, I will say, like, I got to kind of that point a little bit with, with flexible dieting. Like, I, I don't want to say I shoved it down people's throats, but... I probably got too overzealous with, you were one of the with my promotion voices. of it, you know, uh, and so I've kind of come back on that now. And you know, so you're a flexible dieting zealot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I was out there carrying the flag into battle, you know, a big old pop tart on the flag. Um, so and then you have people being like, I don't like pop tarts though. Yeah, I actually don't even like pop tarts. <laughs> I don't either. Right? I'm like, you don't so, have to eat pop tarts. <laughs> um, so let's 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 bring this back just a little bit. Um, but it was great that, to hear you say that because, you know, it's um, – people will look at us, and I've had people, well, how can you be friends with Dom? Like, he's, he's a ketogenic diet person, you know, this and that. I'm like, well, have you ever talked to him? Have you ever actually listened to what he says? You know, it was like uh, I put up something on Twitter uh, in terms of what, like, what you say and what people hear, right? So I put something up on Twitter, and I said, you know, a study that showed that there was no – metabolic advantage to ketogenic diets yeah, yeah. that there, there was you know yeah. between that and e calorie yeah, equated that it was clear. the same yeah. uh -huh. um and somebody said well that's not true i lost 50 pounds on a ketogenic diet i said you did you read yeah. did you actually read well for those of you that, that can't see dom is just implied facepalm very hard <laughs> so, um yeah, I mean, it, it was well, just—it was just—it's just like, really, did you read what I what I actually said? Maybe the definition of metabolic advantage uh, can be misinterpreted. I, I think. Uh, the well, I think when people say you don't say well, it's the greatest thing ever, I yeah. think the immediate response is you're saying it doesn't work. Yeah, and that's not true. I would say it has an appetite suppressant advantage. So, and yeah. that could be a little bit debated, but I think when you have you know, uh, reduced fluctuations in glucose and, and fluctuations in insulin and things like that, that over time that you won't have intense cravings, like everything's sort of attenuated. Uh, and I, I remember, you know, when I was pretty low, very low fat, you know, high, high to moderate carb, you know, moderate protein, that I had pretty intense cravings. Uh, you know, in between meals, mm. and that that just doesn't happen anymore. So that's a practical thing that I think uh, help, helps a lot of people. And when they experience that, 
that can actually make them a zealot because they've tried other <laughs> other methods and say that it just doesn't work, but they probably haven't give, given flexible dieting a try uh, and, uh, you know, in a structured approach. And maybe looking back at, you know, how I kind of approached it when I was doing, I guess, maybe more of a flexible dieting or counting macros, I felt like I was preoccupied with, uh, with food, uh, mm. especially eating four to six to sometimes eight meals a day, which I needed to kind of maintain my energy. And now, you know, I could go, you know, all the entire day and, and not eat and then maintain, you know, my work on a grant or work in the lab and uh, stopping to eat, make food, prepare food, clean up. That that's a non-issue if, if yeah. that happens. It might not be ideal for, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. for, for physique alteration, but uh, but I do that from time to time and it doesn't bother me. Um, yeah. So you had a question. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Had, well, really quick question, and then I had an actual real question. Do you ever miss things like French fries? Pasta. <laughs> uh, you know what? Yeah. So there are some foods, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, the foods that I kind of miss, I guess probably fruit would be the big one, but like last night uh, I had, like my wife and I split a, uh, a pomegranate, right? So I like cut that and maybe I had a quarter because we split a half and I had that and that satisfied my craving for fruit. But I have dark chocolate every day. I have, I make a ketogenic ice cream. That's pretty good. And companies that are emerging on the market now that are keto and super low carb foods uh, so I have ketogenic cookies, ketogenic brownies, uh, ketogenic uh, muffins, Lots and things of like that. So all these foods that were quote-unquote comfort foods, and even dark chocolate that has stevia and a little bit of erythritol in it, and it's, you know, I can stay, I can eat pretty large chunk of a bar and stay in ketosis hmm. with it. So like, so now there really doesn't exist any foods that I create. And, you mentioned French fries. I, you know, I grew up eating potatoes, working on a yeah. potato farm. I loved it. But now, of course uh, you did. <laughs> I do make cauliflower mashed potatoes, which is okay. you know okay. you overcook it, throw in lots of butter and a food processor, and you would be hard pressed, you know, if it's done right, hard pressed to distinguish between uh, mashed potatoes and cauliflower mashed potatoes. I actually like the cauliflower ones because it's like more rich and buttery. Uh, so, so yeah, you just have to be a little bit creative, and therefore, I don't really view it as restrictive. I did until some of these foods came on the market, and now you learn how to cook foods in different ways, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, to to meet those uh, cravings that you have. I think that psychological distinction is really important um, with especially with, you know, what I'm interested in too. I think about this stuff a lot when people decide to go adopt the keto diet, for example. Um, it works really great for a lot of people. And for me, I suspect that it has a lot to do with um, choosing not to eat certain foods or food foods because you decide that you decide on your own that it's not what makes you feel your best, perform your best, versus being told that you're not allowed to eat it just because some coach tells you so. So there's a very distinct that distinction between I am not allowed to eat this or that's a bad food versus I choose not to eat it, um, I think has a lot uh, of implications for how sustainable a given diet is, how much you enjoy it, how psychologically deprived you do or do not feel, which I think is a huge, um, we don't talk about that part enough, I don't think. Yeah, uh, that is, that is important. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, and so I know we talked about keto for body comp and weight loss, and we decided that it can work great for a lot of people, but it's not a magic solution. You still need to um, create a caloric deficit to lose body fat. What about 
for what population would you recommend, very strongly recommend keto for its health benefits? Because I know you talked about cancer and things like that. So what are, what are the populations? Do you think it works well? Well, I would, you know, the person has to be pretty motivated to do it, right? So that would, I would kind of select based on that. Uh, so I think when we're younger, I would pretty much exclude the quote-unquote young population, like someone in their early 20s. Like you wouldn't want to put a teenager like on a, a ketogenic diet unless they had epilepsy or something like that. Uh, I mean, I'm just looking back, you know, when I played football, there was no way I could get in enough calories, you know, or have, uh, you know, there's no way I could do intermittent fasting and, and like gain weight or even maintain weight. So, so some things work for others, but as we age, our carbohydrate tolerance decreases with age. And I think that's pretty clear. Uh, just from what I've seen in numbers, if you track people's numbers kind of over time. Um, so I think in generally speaking, I would say the middle-aged population, people mm -hmm. over 50 may be more responsive to the health benefits. And that's okay. also when we have to start thinking a little bit more about prevention and longevity, I think, and things like chronic inflammation just start creeping in. I mean, when I turned 40 and now, you know, approaching into my mid forties, uh, I just, I felt more, a little bit more achy if I get off of the ketogenic diet and then when I get back on it seems to like I'm taking Motrin or something like the inflammation goes away so that's a real benefit that I knew happened and now we know that research has shown that beta hydroxybutyrate inhibits uh, the NLRP3 inflammasome so it's a major kind of uh, complex that when it's suppressed it prevents inflammatory cytokines from being activated and these things are associated with age-related chronic diseases, autoimmune diseases. So it's, it's suppressing uh, a major activator of inflammation, just keeping beta-hydroxybutyrate levels elevated to a fairly mild amount, like one millimolar has an anti-inflammatory effect. So, uh, and of course, people that maybe have cancer in their family, uh, may benefit from simple carbohydrate restriction. So people who are have hyperglycemia, people who uh, have maybe chronic inflammation or ha are predisposition for things like Alzheimer's disease if they're APOE4 positive. So that would be sort of the genetic, uh, gives you a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's disease. So I think my... Uh, my opinion is that, and I think maybe the research supports this too, is that uh, if you, you know, lower uh, things like uh, hemoglobin H1C, you keep that lower, you keep uh, CRP lower, uh, uh, which is a marker of inflammation, which these things have gone down in me when I follow the ketogenic diet, and I'm a normal healthy person, they weren't elevated really to begin with but my CRP was like 1.5 and now it hardly gets above 0.3. So keeping chronically like lower levels of, of inflammation, preventing systemic inflammation, acute inflammation can be a good thing. It can be kind of an activator of, of you know, muscle growth and things like that. And your body's adaptation to that, to that inflammation is important. So that doesn't go away, but that, that chronic low level of inflammation uh, can be damaging to the cells, and studies have shown that that can induce uh, genes that can cause cancer, oncogenes. So, go ahead oh, something interesting. Yeah. I was going to point out that um, a lot of scientists even don't get that, like um, the difference between a short-term truncated response mm -hmm. yeah. 
versus a long-term low-level elevation. There's yeah. a huge difference. Like even if you just look at the inflammation, reactive oxygen species, hormones, all mm -hmm. those sorts of things, right? Um, look at like um, testosterone goes up uh, after when you work out. Yeah. Um, that's a cortisol fuel, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah cortisol yeah. too. That's a fuel response. That's yeah. not a. That's not a. Um, you know, that's not the anabolic mechanism. And they've shown yeah. this. They've actually yeah. disproven the idea that the short-term rises and falls of testosterone and GH are, are what yeah. cause these things. It's your chronic levels of yeah. testosterone that, that's going to change hypertrophy. Um, same thing for uh, inflammation, right? Mm -hmm. So. It, you have an inflammatory response when you train or you get, you get an injury, uh, you get sick, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of a normal, healthy thing that probably should happen. Promotes right? healing and repair. Yeah. yeah. That's healing a, and repair would be significantly attenuated. Yeah, unfortunately, people hear inflammation and they say, that's yeah. bad, right? And the fact of the matter is, these systems are in your body for a reason, mm -hmm. right? Like, if you, if, you had, if you didn't have an inflammatory system, you couldn't repair tissue. Mm -hmm. Like, you would not be able to repair tissue. You would just die from a cut. You know yeah. what I mean? So you have to have those systems in place. Now, what happens is, like Dom said, when a system becomes dysregulated and it's chronically, just like, um, you know, basically what kills cancer are things that activate apoptosis, right? Mm -hmm. Cell death. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want cell death to get out of control, yeah. right? Just like you don't want cell growth to get out of control. So mm -hmm. normal systems that are put in place in the body, and if you've ever had a biochemistry class, you actually usually, I, I walked out going, man, it's amazing shit doesn't go wrong more often. You know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah. you just look at what happens if you mess up one kinase or enzyme or something yeah, like that, yeah. and you can just have huge repercussions. And for the most part, the body is really resilient. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, what, what you find is that for you to actually be sick, uh, I'll take a kidneys for instance. You can operate on like 20% of one kidney essentially. So for you actually to start to get sick, mm. like you're pretty far, you're in a pretty bad spot. The same thing like by the time you, by the time you've actually forced type two diabetes onto yourself, mm. you're in a really bad metabolic spot. Yeah. Because yeah. your body has so many redundant systems to try to prevent that from happening, yeah. or cancer. There's yeah. all kinds of things that That's are in point. place to prevent uncontrolled cell growth. Yeah. So you're going to need an ex some kind of extreme response, yeah. you know, like um, you, you know, a ketogenic diet, like in terms of dietary intervention, is a pretty extreme mm -hmm. dietary intervention. I mean, would you would you think I'm it going puts, over the line? It puts yeah. stress on your body. Yeah, too. yeah. Uh, but I think you know when people's metabolic health is not in check and they're uh, insulin resistant and hyperglycemic, uh, and you find that's often correlates with elevated uh, levels of, of inflammatory markers, like C-reactive protein. So your body is kind of working, um, your body's less vigilant, I would say. When you're in those, those states, your body, your immune system is less vigilant in finding and purging out and killing the cancer cells or precancer cells that could be coming about. Right, so I think when it's been shown by my colleague, uh, Dr. Adrian Sheck, uh, at Barrow Neurological Institute, and even by uh, guys like uh, Walter Longo, that fasting can activate the immune system and make it more vigilant uh, in a way and stimulates autophagy in, in precancer cells or, or even cancer cells. Uh, it puts metabolic stress on them and kind of activates the immune system in a way to seek out, find, identify, and neutralize and kill cells that are uh, transformed from normal cells to, to precancerous or cancer cells. 
So um, that that's really interesting to me, and that, I think that's some of the benefits that people. Um, you asked me about, you know, who could the benefit from the ketogenic diet. I do think that periodic, you know, intermittent fasting, or even what I would call intermittent ketosis, periodically going into a state of nutritional ketosis, you know, can be beneficial uh, for those reasons. Is this something you'd also recommend to um, make it up? Would you call it like a, a detox, maybe? Uh, well, you know what? Wait, keto, <laughs> paleo, oh, gosh. backloading, yeah, I combine them all. keto detox. It's done. <laughs> So, We're gonna make billions, yeah, Dom. I really do hate the the detox because it gets overused. But I think if there is one kind of thing that we could do to detox our body, it would be not eating and drinking like water, right? Because our body, uh, our bodies will, our liver, for example, stores a lot of stuff, <laughs> and we can go a pretty long time not eating. Actually, the record's about 380 days or more not oh. eating. Uh, yeah, it's a case report for a guy that was about 500 pounds, and he got down to 190 oh. pounds and maintained it years after. So it's a really fascinating get? case report. I include it in some of my talks usually. How huh? low did he get? How low did he get? Uh, he got. He was about 500 pounds, and he got down to like 190, 195, and then maintained it. And he uh, he had zero calories, so he had electrolytes at certain ports, and so it was over one year of not eating. So it's remarkable. So I bet he got productive as hell. I was gonna say, and saved a lot of money on not not buying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so I do think you know there, there's benefits. It can also be you know people can take it way too far and just uh, kind of get preoccupied with with it. But uh, you know, periodically, you know, I will do a short term fast. I did a, a one week fast just mostly as a self experiment. And uh, and was really surprised at how kind of easy it was after the first couple of days. But it's not something that I want to do again, you know. And, and, and now I don't even do intermittent fat. I do it once or twice a week, okay. you know. And, and when I kind of want to be sharp or just actually I just don't have time to make breakfast, <laughs> so I do it. And I feel fine. So that's the benefits of it. And I think I feel a little bit better doing intermittent fasting because I follow a ketogenic diet. So when mm -hmm. my blood glucose gets low, I don't. it doesn't trigger a crisis panic yeah. response in my brain because you have yeah. a you're using a different fuel path exactly. you're using a different fu fuel yeah. source yeah. exactly you that that and that's that's the difference is i guess we should we should kind of circle back because ketosis really the reason this happens is is for i would say essentially two reasons um one your body is trying to spare blood glucose so mm -hmm. it's going to switch to ketones and fats and it's yeah. doing that to spare glucose and also to provide a fuel source for your brain because yeah. your brain, if you're allowed to stay in kind of a, I don't want to say glycolytic state, but yeah. a non-ketogenic state and you're on low carbohydrate, um, your, your brain's going to run through glucose yeah. pretty quick and because you your obligate glucose usage is basically just your red blood cells because they don't have mitochondria, right? Am I missing anything? a little bit. Your yeah. brain really, it can't function off zero glucose even when, when we're but you fasting. can make 100 grams of glucose a day just from your liver very so, easy and yeah. then you know from triglycerides the glycerol backbone becomes, right. becomes glucose uh, but I think it's it's you know the ketosis one of the functions is uh, evolutionary perspective is to prevent the catabolic breakdown of muscle tissue to get glucose for your brain so the ketones largely replace you know about 
70% of that energy is coming from ketones. And if we didn't make ketones, 70% of that energy would be coming from breaking down muscle. And we would mm. go, instead of you know a lean person going two or three months and being okay, a lean person would probably fail to make it more than two weeks if we, they weren't making ketones because they would break down skeletal muscle and heart muscle and mm. probably die of a cardiac arrest or something. I think, I think one of the things that I would say is that like one of the worst places you can be in terms of like fuel selection would be low carb, but high so high protein and not high enough fat that you're yeah. you know you're very low carb but you're not able to actually be in ketosis if you're like skirting that line yep. you're better off being in ketosis or being on a moderate carbohydrate diet where you have both fat and glucose as clear fuel lines to yeah. choose from uh, and then maybe I mean you could always do a ketone supplement of yeah. course because yeah. that we'll talk yeah. about that in a little bit yeah. but um let's go because I think a lot of people are going to want to know about cancer specifically um, and I want to give you the chance to kind of clarify because a lot of people will, mm. will take your stuff and, and they'll go way too far in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> Is it a cure? <laughs> no, no, definitely not a cure. Uh, and, and so, what, yeah. number two, um, so who would it be for? Mm -hmm. What kind of can Is it ubiquitous across all cancer cell lines? Mm -hmm. And how, how does it actually work? And how would you, in general, recommend implementing it um, you know, with somebody who maybe is facing something like that? Yeah, uh, so that's a lot of questions. Yeah, so okay, I'll, let me go I'll back. Go, no, no, how does it work? Think, yeah, <laughs> how does it work? Well, uh, well, the reason that it kind of even works at all was, uh, I think it was Linda Nebling you know, published a paper about 20 years ago or so in pediatric in kids that had uh, brain tumors. And these kids, you know, also get seizures. So it made sense that, you know, let's use the ketogenic diet here to help not only control some of the seizures that kids were having, uh, but it made sense from a metabolic standpoint that uh, lowering glucose availability, in, especially in brain tumors that have show up hot on a PET scan, and suppressing insulin signaling uh, would, at the very least, slow the tumor growth over time and help, help these patients maintain their seizures, too. So it was like serving two important purposes. Uh, and f out of those studies uh, evolved, and it was kind of generally uh, appreciated that the ketogenic diet mimicked the many aspects of the metabolic physiology that would be that would occur with calorie restriction and with fasting. So that would be suppression of IGF-1, suppression of mTOR signaling, uh, you know, re reduced spikes in glucose and insulin, that sort of thing. So it was appreciated from a biochemical standpoint that it, it would kind of make sense to do it. And then some animal studies were done, animal uh, experiments were done, it kind of validated it in a number of different models. Uh, I know Eugene uh, Fine from uh, Albert Einstein Institute had seven different aggressive human cancer cell lines and uh, grew, these, grew these cancer cell lines, these human cancer cell lines in the presence of ketones. And I think all seven human cancer cell lines from a wide variety of sources uh, were all uh, inhibited, uh, their growth was inhibited in one way or another. Some, in some cells it was a mild inhibition, in others it was a relatively uh, significant decrease in the cancer cell's ability to make ATP in the presence of ketones. So, uh, so I think, you know, the, it, it seemed like uh, this was a, a useful application in particular for brain 
cancer patients that suffer from seizures. And that's really what I became interested in studying uh, because I was studying seizures at the time. And a few of the colleagues that had patients and a few of the colleagues that were doing animal uh, research uh, casually said to me, well, the ketogenic diet's actually probably more effective for cancer than it is for epilepsy. And they appreciated that the ketogenic diet was effective for epilepsy. So, and I kind of asked, well, why, why isn't this not being studied? And it was being studied by a few people, but it motivated me more to study this because I wanted to understand if this was actually the case. And I specifically wanted to understand if, uh, if the ketogenic diet could suppress the growth and spread of uh, a glioblastoma, which is, as we know, the most aggressive uh, forms of cancer uh, as a brain cancer. So I tried to get access to a, a glioblastoma brain cancer model, mouse model, and, uh, and was diverted to uh, a model system that uh, had been used and actually chemotherapy was studied uh, with this model. And it was basically, they had not cured cancer in this model yet. So it actually made me more interested in studying it since nothing was working in it. And I was like, well, okay, so let, let's use this model system. And it was the first model system that uh, we studied in the lab and it had the ketogenic diet had a remarkable effect at preventing the spread and growth of metastatic cancer in this particular model. So now, you know, what we're uh, doing is studying uh, a wide array of different types of cancers to determine if uh, other types of cancers are amenable to this kind of therapy. And of course, it's not our lab. People just think, kind of look at our lab as the only lab studying the ketogenic diet in cancer, but it's really dozens of labs. Uh, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, when I got into this research, there may have been one, I don't even think there was one study, you know, doing this a, 10 years ago, but now there's uh, maybe approaching two dozen studies. Like these are large scale clinical trials that are registered. And most of them, you know, we believe that the nutritional ketosis should function, function as an adjuvant to the standard of care in, in most cases, right? That it can, and that's what uh, one of my, my colleagues, uh, Adrian Sheck studies, the enhancement of chemotherapy and the enhancement of radiation therapy with nutritional ketosis. So it makes the cancer cells more vulnerable to other modalities that you're hitting it with. So basically, if you compromise tumor metabolism, the metabolism of sugar plays a big role in generating various defense systems that the cancer cells use. And you cripple their defenses and you hit it with you know various modalities, uh, then you can uh, enhanced therapeutic effect. And patients also get less side effects when they follow the ketogenic diet. This was kind of shown also when they fast. Walter Longo had published a few studies showing fasting can prevent some of the side effects. And side effects of inflammation or side effects of chemo and radiation have to do with uh, uh, too much inflammation, the like chronic inflammation. So it tends to knock down those aspects of it. Uh, so to answer your question, uh, I think that the cancers, the types of cancer that would be most amenable to this therapy are ones that uh, overtly express what we call the Warburg effect, right? Which is uh, rates of glycolysis many times higher, up to 200 times higher in cancer cells relative to normal healthy cells that are very apparent and visible on something like a, an FGG PET scan. 
So oncologists use this technology to locate, uh, to, to pinpoint the location of cancer and also the aggressiveness of cancer. But as of now, they don't use that technology or this information, I would say, to target the cancer. Uh, although there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are scrambling to basically develop drugs that can inhibit uh, tumor metabolism with specific emphasis on enzymes like hexokinase and hexokinase 2. Uh, there's also a recent interest, uh, and this is pretty new, a recent interest that tumor cells can metabolize fatty acids for uh, energy. And that kind of contradicts some of, the, some of the ideas that we kind of promote, that cancer cells have damaged mitochondria. Uh, but it's not clearly, it's not very clear that the cancer cells are using these fatty acids for a source of energy. Uh, they may be directing fats towards biosynthetic to the, the, the formation of new membrane, to the expanding biomass of the tumor. And, hmm. and we know that glutamine, for example, uh, actually gets incorporated into the membranes. So it's actually, uh, it's actually converted into a fatty acid. And so cancer cells do that quite well. well and and the, yeah. there actually is a, um, there are cancer treatments that target uh, gl glutaminase and yes. asparaginase yep. as yep. well. So yep. like trying to target the breakdown, like preventing yeah. the breakdown of glutamine and asparagine. Yep. Um, as, as, as kind of a way to prevent uh, cell turnover. Yeah. So, and, and apparently, like you're saying, they're going to, to membrane, not mm -hmm. for energy metabolism. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of glutamine goes into the membrane. It gets in, you know, ultimately converted through de novo, uh, you know, fatty acid synthesis. Yeah, but and the, uh, I wonder if they've done, has there been any tracer studies done to look at where those fatty acids are going? Yeah, uh, a couple of colleagues of mine did some studies with label glutamine and showed that it was being incorporated uh, when they do the lipidomics, it was being incorporated into fatty acids. Uh, interestingly, when you follow the ketogenic diet or even carbohydrate, you know, restricted higher fat diet, your blood levels of fats go down uh, because if you're eating carbohydrates, you're kind of sparing the fats uh, for fuel. So they float around in your blood and could be potentially even feeding these tumors that are thriving off fat. So when you train your body to be more fat adapted, I would say, uh, you tend to, and of course it's dependent on calorie restrict or calorie deficit, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, with the calorie deficit, especially that the uh, you actually significantly reduce triglyceride levels in the blood, and that was probably the biggest thing that I saw in my blood work. That my triglyceride levels went down, got cut in half. So yeah, I had less fat be, in my blood, even though I was eating about three times more fat. <laughs> it has to, it has to be uh, uh, you know your overall cap because yeah. you know if you're eating. You know, it should be a high-fat diet relative to a caloric restriction, especially I think yeah, if we're yeah. talking about cancer. Yeah. The, the caloric restriction is still a big deal. I think um, I, I do yeah, I do need to emphasize that, that I think the m major benefits, most benefits from the ketogenic diet as it, as it pertains to cancer would be with a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet, which is difficult and even controversial to implement in cancer patients who cachexia. have cachexia, muscle wasting which is why you know, we have a whole, even a grant uh, to study muscle wasting, to mitigate muscle wasting associated with, uh, with cancer. And, and it's, it's really bad because a lot of people who have cancer are old, so they have age-related sarcopenia on top of cancer cachexia, on top yeah. of chemo-induced cachexia. Yep. Chemotherapy is very catabolic to muscle, so you have yep. all these different things factoring in. Plus, they feel they don't feel good, so they can't exercise, so they have muscle wasting because they lose their functionality. 
So and they have trouble, things. trouble eating, especially uh, like things on like top of that, higher yeah. protein foods and whatnot. They're yep. hard to eat. Um, but the, the I think the you know you look at like if you because if you're talking about okay not like an, a 70% fat diet yeah. and you're talking about 2,000 calories, but if you're talking about 4,000 calories, which is probably there's probably no one on, on cancer treatment who's going to eat that much. Maybe yeah. there are. Yeah. But um, you know that would be enough fat. That even though yes you're you're metabolizing fat you're probably going to see your fat go up in your blood just because there's only so much you're going to metabolize. I mean, sure. uh, you know, not to get too far off track, but you know, people ask like what causes type two diabetes and everything, and I actually think the mitochondrial dysfunction is, is kind of the, the core of it because yeah. if you're if you look at it like a conveyor belt, you know, it's coming out of the blood into mm -hmm. the cell where it's being metabolized. Um, if the, the end point where it's being metabolized, if that kind of slows down, it's going to back everything else up. Mm -hmm. And what do you see in type 2 diabetes? Well, you not just see elevated blood glucose, you also see elevated blood lipids. You actually see elevated blood amino acids as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and actually it was funny, there was a lab that was kind of making the case that branched chain amino acids were the cause of, of type 2 diabetes, I which I thought that, was yeah, interesting. New guard, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, it's like, well, Everything's elevated in type two diabetes. Yeah. Do you really think it's yeah. <laughs> all things the branch chains? Yeah. But um, no, so I think that that's something I wanted to emphasize. And yeah. um, you so know, surplus calories. So if you're eating the ketogenic diet and you have surplus calories in the form of fat, obviously you're going to have an elevated you know fat levels in the blood. Uh, and you know the liver is quite adept at making, uh, converting excess carbohydrates uh, through de novo lipogenesis into fat, and the fat kind of stays in the liver. So uh, excess carbohydrates can be converted to fat, maybe not as much, you know, uh, as adipose as it stays in the liver. So non-alcoholic yeah. fatty liver disease is something. Yeah. So for, for, so looking at, and you said that it seemed like the, the, the types of cancers who were more aggressive that they yeah. tend to have this 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 Warburg effect, yep. and that they may be uh, more uh, receptive to this treatment. Yep. Whereas uh, slow growing cancers, you you took the example of more testicular cancer, indolent cancer, yeah, yeah. Or but those are usually blood cancers very... too. Oh, okay, like no, leukemia, lymphoma, testicular cancer, maybe like stage one or two, breast cancer even, uh, are you know there's a number of of types of cancers you'd be crazy not to do the standard of care, you know. Or, works very well. I, we would argue, we think that it would work much, much better uh, in many cases if you use the ketogenic diet as an adjuvant approach because right now mainstream oncology does not really appreciate that nutrition can have an impact, a significant impact on uh, the quality of life and the outcomes, the survival outcomes of the patient. And, you know, if you just Anyone who studies nutrition and metabolism realize that that's uh, not true, and it's it's actually really really unfortunate that it's an underutilized approach. So the the whole nutrition, uh, the person has to be uh, this this will play a big role in their ability to tolerate chemotherapy too. Their overall metabolic health and physiology. You know, I've seen people succumb to the stress of chemotherapy and die as a result of the chemotherapy. Yeah, just in fact, that's that's not. very common. A lot of people yep. die from the treatment, not from the therapy. In fact, uh, yep. you'll have people who have like like stage four or something like that, and yeah. there may be like comorbidities and ill health. Yeah, yeah. And doctors will go, it's not even worth it to do chemo for them because it's going to kill them. Oh yeah. You know, yep. they might yep. as well try and live the rest of their life comfortably. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you know, dying from chemo is actually a really awful, awful. Yeah 
awful process. And I've seen it happen in people that were like very robust health and strong and you know guys that I trained with a few weeks earlier in the gym and we were going set for set with one another and they go in for chemo and it just completely compromises their immune system where maybe they have a minor surgical procedure and get an infection and yeah. they basically are killed off by that so yeah. I've seen this happen pretty sad yeah and I think I think the point to make here is you're not saying and we're not saying it and I don't think anybody reasonable person would ever say but I have heard this from keto zealots we're not saying don't get chemo or don't do oh, the no, standard no, of care no. if you have cancer what what I've Don actually is, encouraged people to do I've had even students of mine get certain forms of cancer where they're saying well I'm considering not doing it and I would actually talk them into doing the standard of care uh, and maybe encouraging instead of the maximum tolerable dose, <laughs> maybe maybe a more moderate or even minimal, you know, effective dose. Because a lot of people, uh, oncologists, really think that you kind of go in there, cut, and just you know hit it with the highest dose possible, uh, and then let's see what happens. And I think the chemo is doing a lot of collateral damage, and that needs to be appreciated. So I think it's important to to approach therapy in that regard. There's new new therapies being developed, like immune-based therapies, and I think yeah. that's pretty encouraging. Well, I think what people don't realize, too, is we go back to the fundamental of what cancer is. It's yep. uncontrolled cell growth. Yep. So the way to beat cancer is to stop cell growth. Yep. To stop cell growth, you have to kill those cells, and you have to prevent yep. new ones from coming. So and that means you're taking poison. You're taking yep. something that kills cells. And um, reduce the drivers that make that possible. Right, so DNA replication. The mitogens and the fuel. So if you, the fuel and the anabolic precursors that are uh, contributing to the expanding biomass of the tumor, yeah. right? So we know that glucose and glutamine are the two fuels, but it's kind of hard to, you know, because yeah, your yeah, body, you're, you're, glutamine you're, out of the diet. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, there's, ways, there's ways to do that. And, and, and glutamine is actually created by the body endogenously, as is it glucose. Is. So. Yeah. So, but if you can drop it down from, you know, glutamine can be as high as like one millimolar and wow. drop it down to, uh, you know, to half, that, that can compromise. So tumor cells actually have to keep uh, a certain level of, of energetic state and, and, and proliferation to even maintain their viability because uh, the, in, a, in a tumor, the cells are actually dying off of necrosis and it's kind of, but they're growing faster than they're dying off. So you'll find lots of necrotic cells in tumor. So the idea is if you could slow down the proliferation, then the cell death in the tumor, you know, is going to uh, be faster than the, the cells, you know, that are dividing and reproducing and living. Unfortunately, that means for the healthy cells, there's also going to be some collateral damage, as you yeah, said. You yeah, know, yeah. So that's where you get the yep. side effects from, from, from chemo. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like, like, I mean, it makes sense. You would want, you know, when you wage a battle on the battlefield, you don't just say, well, we're attacking from land. You go air, land, sea. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to try and beat a, beat a tumor, okay, let's limit the fuel that fuels the yep. tumor. Yep. Let's reduce the – let's kill off those cells that are there, mm -hmm. and then let's stop them from proliferating in the first place, kind of yep. like a multi-headed uh, yes. attack. Um, and, and that seems to make a lot of sense. Now, when I was here a few uh, years ago, you guys said that – you seemed like at first you thought it was about dropping the blood glucose really as low as you could. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like you kind of changed that opinion that maybe it was more about getting the ketones actually elevated. Uh, where are you guys on that? So 
we are at the point where you know lowering blood glucose is just not feasible. Mm. <laughs> uh, base, baseline blood glucose. But what you can do is prevent those spikes in glucose. Mm. So the spikes, those, uh, and you can appreciate this, those relative changes mm -hmm. in, in insulin and glucose and insulin play a big role in growth. Yeah. Just like uh, you know relative changes in branched chain amino acids and leucine. Yeah, your your baseline trigger. levels of insulin are, are, are just keeping the lights on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Unless you have type 2 and you're dysregulated. Yeah, and I actually, I've been doing an insulin experiment on myself, you know, with fat. I can keep it in the very low to normal range. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that later. But uh, <laughs> So the ketogenic diet, you know, keeps insulin and glucose very low, and that's a good thing, and elevates ketones, which have certain signaling properties uh, and even an anti-glycolytic effect uh, in and of itself. So these are some of the things that uh, we find are important. And you can kind of look at the glucose ketone index, which is the ratio of glucose over ketones in millimolar. And if you can keep that between one and two, essentially meaning that you know you get your glucose down to uh, three millimolar, and if you can keep it like that, and get your ketones from one into the one to three millimolar range, like that is very therapeutic. That has been shown to be very effective for even managing epilepsy. Uh, and other things that, so we do uh, a lot of drug-based research too. So we are looking at drugs that work, you know, through a metabolic uh, mechanism or through metabolic signaling. And some of these drugs include things like metformin. And we know with type 2 diabetics, if they maintain metformin uh, over the course of their treatment, that they could be 60% less likely to get uh, pancreatic cancer. So and metformin is actually, they've actually shown now, I think it's in, in rats, right, that yeah. it actually extends their life, that metformin actually extends their life. It is, so it has, so it triggers things like, you know, activation of AMP kinase and CERT1. Whole, yeah, CERT1 yeah. And, and various signaling that's associated with longevity signaling. And, you know, when I got into this, metformin was not, not something that would be considered an anti-cancer drug, but if you go on clinicaltrials.gov and type in metformin and cancer, you get about 180 clinical trials. You know, so oncologists see the ketogenic diet and then they see metformin and they're like, why don't we just use metformin? Because it's kind of doing the same thing. But what I say, well, why don't you use the ketogenic diet and, <laughs> and metformin, metformin and yeah. intermittent fasting and, uh, you know, some other things that we, we do. As I mentioned it earlier, there's things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which stimulates oxidative stress in cancer cells. So, and radiation kills cancer cells through stimulating oxidative stress. So generating oxygen-free radicals in the tumor and the efficacy of radiation therapy will be proportional to the PO2 of the tumor, right? So if you hyper-oxygenate a tumor or increase oxidative stress in the tumor and then zap it with radiation, you're gonna be you know, killing off a lot more, more cells. And hyperbaric oxygen therapy is non-toxic relative to, to radiation therapy. Uh, and also things, another, one of my students is studying intravenous vitamin C. So taking mm. oral vitamin C Dang. will do nothing. <laughs> so you so. just cannot, but certain things delivered intravenously, like vitamin C, can have very potent effects. I mean, you Imagine get like if you're millimolar doing... levels of vitamin wow. C. Wow, so yeah. that would be very high levels of oxidative stress. Yes. Because any antioxidant, if you get high enough, will become a pro-oxidant. Not so. well, not any of those vitamin C, especially. But well, vitamin yeah. C, yeah. So it, it drives uh, what, what's called the Fenton reaction. So mm -hmm. if you go back to, to biochemistry, so if you create, uh, you can create oxidative stress in the cancer cells, in particular uh, through the generation of uh, uh, oxygen free radicals, uh, hydrogen peroxide, 
and, uh, and through the Fenton reaction, uh, which is driven by free iron, uh, you generate something called the hydroxyl radical, which is very, very potent uh, oxidative stress. And it happens much more readily in cancer cells that have this breakdown, various breakdown products of heme and, he and heme protein. So the free iron comes from various uh, cytochromes and, and heme proteins. So you have a lot of free iron in, uh, in the tumor. And if you saturate the, your body with uh, high levels of vitamin C in addition to hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you are selectively uh, generating proportionally way more oxidative stress in the tumor cells relative to the healthy tissue. And if you think about it, you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy and vitamin C are completely non-toxic, or they can be delivered in a way that's completely non-toxic. We know how to do that. Uh, so these are some of the approaches that we think should be tried in some patients even before the standard of care. So that could be kind of controversial, but these are uh, approaches that we believe you know, should be used perhaps uh, as a neoadjuvant and, and also as an adjuvant to the standard of care. And, and one more thing, because I know yeah. you've got probably a ton of questions. So hey, uh, uh, but you also uh, do uh, actually exogenous ketones. Right. Yes. So you guys use that as well. So that's, uh, I don't want to be like the exogenous ketone shilling guy. But, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but yeah, we are, and, and the science is emerging on this, but it is showing that if you can sort of artificially elevate uh, ketone levels with a ketone ester, which was developed originally for more military applications, or, uh, or a ketone salt. Uh, which is taking the ketone body, beta-hydroxybutyrate, and combining it with like sodium, potassium, you know, magnesium, things like that, uh, that we can artificially you know, elevate ketosis to a level, even within 15 to 20 minutes, to a level that would take like a week to achieve with a wow. diet or fasting. So that's, I mean, we can deliver these things in, in pretty high doses. Well, that could be useful for somebody who's following a ketogenic diet and for whatever reason, like they maybe they they decide, you know what, yeah. I, I want to have some carbohydrate today, but yeah. they want to stay in ketosis. Yeah, you know yeah, that, yeah. that would keep them. In, am I am I thinking about this correctly? Like would that keep them in ketosis? It would keep them in ketosis, and I think, uh, you know, the benefits are, you know, they would be getting, you know, the, the the benefits of having ketones elevated, which we now know are, you know, reduction in inflammation and even a gene activation. Uh, that can have epigenetic effects, and uh, and there's various you know things that have been studied in animal models at least. Uh, but also from a dieting perspective, is that if you do take in carbohydrates, that we have shown and other labs have shown that when you consume ketones with carbohydrates, you have better glucose disposal of uh, in your body. So it's mm. in some ways we don't understand this yet, but it's very clear it's happening with. Uh, with ketone salts and with ketone esters that it's uh, decreasing uh, the blood glucose levels when you consume exogenous ketones. That and it's seems counterintuitive. It's a really big effect. It's not like something that's small. Like we do research with metformin and it's like way more potent than metformin in suppressing uh, uh, glucose levels. Yeah, and the, the thing to keep in mind is um, we are you may be getting an improvement in insulin sensitivity, which which maybe could yeah. explain it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I this information is to me uh, a lot of new information, and I mean, you would think that a lot more people um, 
would be making a bigger deal about this. And uh, kind of makes me think that maybe we do need to do a better job of disseminating this information, especially with cancer and all these things. Um, but so I had a question from way back then. The beginning of the episode, you mentioned that a lot of people think that it's keto is just high protein, but you mentioned moderate protein. So what, and you know, it's not never eat any carbs ever because you eat, you know, you had pomegranate and whatnot. What qualifies to you? I know obviously needs will differ based on the person, on the person's size, body weight, etc. What qualifies as keto in terms of protein, carbs, and fats? Yeah, moderate protein would be one gram to 1.5 grams per kilogram uh, of protein. Okay. So for me, I'm 100 kilograms, so that would be you know 100 to 150 grams okay. a day of protein would be moderate. And when you maintain that level of protein, uh, with balance being fats, uh, you can that that macronutrient profile would uh, achieve and sustain nutritional ketosis through the suppression of insulin signaling. Uh, you know, enhance fat oxidation in the liver and the generation of uh, de novo uh, ketones, ketogenesis. So that can be maintained with that macronutrient profile. So it's really important if you get above that, the excess protein can stimulate insulin response and, and keep you out of nutritional ketosis. Which is actually, I think, it's probably lower than what most bodybuilders eat, um, for protein-wise anyway. It's probably lower than what most bodybuilders consume lately because they usually do yeah. one gram per pound of body, pound of body weight or more is what I've seen with bodybuilders. So maybe bring that down if they want to. Yeah, yeah that would, it would be, you know, the yeah. most you'd want to go would be like 1.6 to yeah. 1.8 grams per kg, I think, per kilo. Yeah. Yeah. I did like, you know, 400 grams of protein for years, and it was just kind of unnecessary. Yeah, so I did that. So now I realize it's amazing. I need probably like a third of the amount of protein that I used to eat and can maintain the same strength, you know, yeah. if I keep my calories regulated. So. Yeah. Well, Dom, I, well, we could probably sit here and talk for another three hours, oh, but um, yeah. I, how, where can people find out more about you and your research? Uh, you could, the best site to uh, catch me on is ketonutrition.org. So that site has uh, you know, clinical trials. It has a list of consultants on there that do diet consulting for performance or, or for clinical things, and it's got uh, a wide range of resources that I think would help people that are interested in the topics we talked about today. Awesome. Well, and you can find Sohi at SohiFit.com, myself at BioLane.com. Hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, I, I, you know, this has been a podcast long time coming because I've known Don for so long. I'm sure this won't be the last one. Uh, I, I think Sohi, you really enjoyed this one, right? I learned so much. I'm yeah, yeah. That, 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 you stand around Dom, uh, Holly, and Kabir were here yesterday, and they're both just mind blown. And I, I was getting the itch to go back to school. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Dom. Your time. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Zoe, we'll catch you later. All right. Bye. Bye, Zoe.